I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who have great personalities. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 326 for September 26, 2016. On today's show, we're talking about curved calls. Who needs them? What's Matt going to do with all those slabs? What's the deal with Purple Heart? And all kinds of backwards sawing and softwood, only Japanese woodworking questions. You can tell I didn't write this. I'm reading it terribly. Uh, only Japanese woodworking questions for our guest host. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, today's show. I totally set you up for Seinfeld on there. Did and you? you just skim right over it? What's the deal with Purple Heart? <laughs> well, see, you gotta let me reading it. You gotta let me know. You gotta prep me for the Seinfeld delivery. I could have done it, but I didn't. I didn't figure that a prep was needed. You know, knowing what a big fan you are. What's your the professional deal mark? with Purple Heart? Yeah, get. You know what I fell asleep to? What I fall asleep to every night these days? Episodes of Seinfeld on Hulu. And you know what happens if you don't turn it off? It just plays all night long and eats up your bandwidth all night long. So uh, word warning, don't do that. Uh, Today's show is sponsored by Miter Set. Set your miter gauge to the perfect angle the first time with Miter Set. Check them out at miterset.com. And also thanks to some donors. Let me read these names. Hopefully none of them are goofs on me. I mean, they're all probably goofballs, but, uh, you know, the name itself. Amber Allison, Robert Kempel, Martin Smith, Chase Snyder, Mark Putnam, Rob Wirtz, uh... Brian Kudner, um, that's horrible. Sorry, uh, Brian. Uh, Matt Anglum, Kyle Denny, Josh Meyer, Anthony Renna, Kit High, Stephen Denman, John Duggan, Mike Wittenauer, uh, Brody Brickery, uh, John Vrault, Johnny V, Joe Lipinski, Patrick Hughes, Jared Meeker, Dan West, Terry Mulligan, John Hall, Jeffrey Ryder, a lot of them this week, guys. Steve Haim, Hamis, Hamis, Seth Messer, Delano, Delano, Morellis, Anthony M, and Dave Lloyd. Uh, so if you want to join those folks wow. at the beginning of the show, get your name read, have your name in lights, uh, you could do that. Just go to patreon.com slash woodtalk and we will try to pronounce your name. I will try to pronounce your name at the beginning of the show. I ain't trying. Yeah, it's it's really not worth it. Let, let me, uh, I'll, I'll take the uh, hit on this one. I'll, I'll go under the bus. 
Um, so goals, I guess we should mention, we did hit a goal a couple of weeks ago. I forgot to mention it before, um, to, to have the guests going live, but also, uh, no more non woodworking ads, which is kind of a big deal. So no more Harry's no more. Uh, I don't know. What did we have? Meat. Did we had meat ads <laughs> and, and, meat and, once and, and, and gambling ads? So none of that stuff. It's all like, if we're going to take an ad, it's got to be woodworking related on topic. So hopefully you guys can appreciate that. And we are very, very close. Uh, It's going to happen soon. I feel it because we're so close. The weekend show will return. And again, it just means more content for you guys. So if you want to help us out, go to patreon.com slash woodtalk, and that's where you can do that. And one last note, little programming note, if you want to watch the show live, we do record 6 p.m. Eastern on Monday evenings, and you can catch us at, uh, what is it, youtube.com slash woodtalk slash live. And uh, you'll see our pretty faces just uh, doing what we do. It's not much to look at, frankly. None of us are all that good looking, so sorry about that. Thanks. <laughs> you like how I speak for all of us? <laughs> You're welcome, boys. Uh, and now let's get to our special guest. We actually, you know, as promised with the whole Patreon thing, we are going to have guests once in a while. I'd like to welcome Wilbur Pan to the show. And uh, Wilbur is hot off his tour, which started in Kentucky and ended in Kentucky. Uh, and he's also the uh, the author of GiantCypress.net. Uh, a good all-around guy, and he happens to be a doctor and a darn good one. So, welcome to the show, Wilbur. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, we thanks, man. Thanks, Jen. And a fellow steak and shake aficionado. Yeah. Oh man, I love that stuff. Well, we got a question <laughs> awesome. about uh, your your choice yeah. in burgers later that we'll have to get to. Uh, <laughs> so we do have Wilbur here. He's going to help us out hosting the show and have some questions specifically for Wilbur that we'll get to later on. Um, do you remember Shannon when we were at WIA, the uh, Paralympian? dude who bought us dinner do you remember his name uh mike i know his last name Mike something um i want to say jason devlin young oh i wish i could remember his name i feel like such a a bum uh but we were we were having dinner the three hosts here and uh, and families my family wasn't there and some (laughs) really really nice guy bought us dinner and turned out to be that the guy is like Kind of a Chris big, Young, Chris Young, Chris, Chris. There you go. Okay, so he's kind of yeah. a big deal, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it was just an honor to to talk to the guy, let alone have him go and buy his dinner. So we just wanted to send a thank you to Chris. And if I had done my homework, I would have known his name before reading this stuff and talking about it. Um, but again, thank you, Chris. Hopefully, he's listening to the show. And uh, let's Chris, get into. It the... was my wife that cyber stalked you when we got back to the room. <clears throat> yeah, she immediately like, like, "Who is this guy?" I, I immediately started texting Mark and Matt, going, "Do you know who we just talked to?" So yeah. <laughs> Blame my wife. She cyberstalked you. It's pretty cool. It's good stuff. All right. Let's get into what's on the bench. Uh, we'll throw it to Wilbur first since he's the guest of honor. Wilbur, what are you working on? Um, well, basically on my bench is a big mess because uh, um, you know I was packing up to go to WIA for the talk. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that went on the bench and trying to figure out what to bring and then left half the stuff on the bench. And then it got back and is what usually happens um, with me in the day job. Um, when I got back, I've uh, been busy dealing with stuff at work sure. and really haven't had a chance. So th- uh, this past weekend, all I really did was um, clean up uh, from the uh, from coming back from WIA. Sure, sure. And that's about it. I can't imagine with a, a schedule of a doctor, like how many projects, if you could ballpark it, what kind of project production do you get for the year? Ooh, um, probably three. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
it kind of depends on the you know the scale of the project too. Sure. Um, like you know, for, I mean, it depends on how you define project because you know, one year I decided to make pens for gifts for you know people at work and stuff like that. So that was like a dozen, okay. all in like two nights. Right. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> I can't believe that you prior- prioritize saving lives over woodworking projects. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Yeah. Well, very good. Um, I have been working on the Castle Bookcase, uh, which is this year's Woodworkers Fighting Cancer Project, and knocked it out in two days and got the filming done. So we just have the paint job to do. Nicole's actually got a little brick sort of stencil that she's doing, and I'm just glad to pass it off to her and let her finish this part <laughs> up. Uh, and then I get to do the intro when it's all said and done. But that video is actually, I mean, quick turnaround. I built it this weekend, and the video and plans should all be out this Friday. So um, I've got this clock to do and I've got a a shop that's going away any day now, (laughs) you know, so it's like I I really have to to get this stuff going. Um, Not to derail too much, but I I don't know if you guys have ever really looked into the cost of like long distance moving and and not just residential stuff, but shop stuff. Now, I've done it locally. Hell no, I don't have Honda money. I know. Well, you know, when you're sitting on a bed of money like this, you got to find stuff to spend it on. Um, so I'm looking at the cost of shipping and thinking, all right, if the, if I'm getting help to move this stuff, the actual cost of the move, you really have to start thinking some of your tools, especially the ones that you have trouble moving yourself, you may be better off selling and, and then buying once you get there. So I started to do the math on just how many tools I would have to take a loss on before that loss number equates what it's going to cost to have the stuff moved and then consider, you know, possibly moving it myself instead. And it's, it's interesting in my case, I'm still going to use the movers, but I am going to sell a couple of things to lighten the load and hopefully decrease my costs uh, as, as I do this, you know, big giant move. So if you're moving, that is something to think about. Do the math on it because you may actually be better off selling the darn stuff and buying new and maybe, you know, losing 25% on, on the deal because it's just so expensive to move this stuff from state to state. So just, you know, Word of warning there. <laughs> it's pricing. Wow, that's interesting. Because yeah. like the individual freight on each of those things, is that much less than having the shipping company just throw it in the back of a semi? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I mean, you've got four, at least what I was quoted at is four guys doing the labor and they ha- and I've seen them do it before. I've got video of it, <laughs> of them dropping, practically <laughs> dropping my table saw. Um, you know, what it costs to move these. And of course for us, it's storage as well. So the nightmare can't even imagine their jobs. They have to take the stuff from my shop, put it in a truck, take it to a storage unit, Mm -hmm. unload, and then load it back up a month later to go to Colorado. So, I mean, that's just a lot of labor to pay for that. It actually might in some cases make more sense to sell the stuff and buy new. It's nuts. So you just want an excuse to buy new stuff. Who doesn't? Who yeah. doesn't, right? It's, it's not it's not taking a lot of arm twisting here. Everybody <laughs> everybody listening's nodding. Oh, yeah. you have to. You, you must. It's a moral imperative. I mean, this drill over here, right? I've got to sell this drill and buy some new ones. Right. It, it only makes sense. Yeah. Think of the children. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's uh, that's it for me. So yeah. Matt, tell us about this gun stock. I saw the video. It was awesome. I made it. Was it good? It was cool. <laughs> it, what was it made of, Mark? Uh, Paduke. Paduke. This this was, was a Paduke? five minute conversation where I had to keep telling Matt it's Paduke. <laughs> It's Paduke, Matt. <laughs> that was my, my first time working with Paduke, and I think I can count on one hand the number of exotics I've ever worked with. And like, the, it's what's interesting for like the way that I work is I work with domestics, but like regional domestics. Like, if it doesn't grow around here, I probably haven't worked with it. So like exotics, the only exotics I've ever worked with are like Purple Heart, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about later, and now Paduke, and um, that's it, I think. And how did you like it? 
I actually liked it a lot. Yeah. Was it, it, did it was, you find it very different? It was extremely different because it was so easy to work with. Yeah. It's just like every, like my planes, like this glid right on through it. The chisels went right through it. I did find it a little more, I, I guess, fibrous. I don't know a good way to describe it. But it was a little more chippy or fibrous as I was mm-hmm. chiseling it. It's mm-hmm. like the fibers kind of separated pretty easily from each other, which made it pretty easy to like pair along the grain. Right. Um, it's so oily and waxy. It's like self-lubricating. Yeah, it kind of is. That's true, too, because Mark was like, do you touch it? Is it all oily? I'm like, wait a second. Yes. Like My hand's like, as soon as you told me that, I couldn't like get away from the fact that my hands felt weird yeah. and oily. See, some I'm of like, them, is- some of the exotics aren't that bad, but in, in particular, Badook and a couple others, you can actually just kind of feel this oily nature to the grain on the surface. I mean, it's not, you know, like you said, you might not even notice it, but then once you start to look for it, you go, ooh, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I can't not mm-hmm. see it now. <laughs> uh, Wilbur, have you ever worked with exotics? I mean, you, you focus on hand tools yeah. quite a bit, right? Right, right. But uh, most of the stuff that I um, work with is uh, North American hardwoods. Okay. Um, and it's mainly because uh, several years ago, um, I stumbled onto this uh, f- uh, farm auction thing and just bought this unholy amount of cherry and walnut for really, really cheap. Nice. And I'm still working my way through that. <laughs> That's cool. I figure yeah. to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. So overall, um, uh, Matt, did you have like difficulty matching the patterns? Because once you, once you took that the, the stock off and you can see how it actually connects to the body of the gun. I was like, Oh, there's actually a lot more going on there than I would have thought. <laughs> right. I mean, so I, I was wondering, I was excited to see how you tackled some of those issues to get yeah, that thing to fit. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. Uh, it was a lot of like, you know, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out. Um, it was normally I would be able to see the, like the, the wear spots or the compression spots easier on like a different kind of wood, but on the Paducah, I couldn't really tell where it was contacting and kind of right. crushing the fibers. Yeah. So I kind of had a hard time really like figuring out where I need to remove material to get the fit in better. Um, but a little bit of back and forth just here and there. The nice thing about that was like, once you got the, the only thing that really mattered was the part that went into the gun and then the rest of it could be shaped however you wanted. Mm. Um, so I kind of enjoyed that because I was like, oh, I can do some hand shaping, kind of give it a little more of a, a hand hand shaped look. It doesn't have to be super perfect because the gun itself was really old and really beat up and it had a lot of memories in it. So I didn't really I didn't need the stock to be like this pristine, perfect looking thing. Sure. It could have some imperfection to it. By imperfection I mean like it's not symmetrical from like one side to the other. Right. Cool. Well it came out great. Fun. Nice. Thanks. Good deal. Uh Shannon, what about you? Um, uh, I built the fly swatter. <laughs> uh, you know what? The funny thing is I saw that there and I'm like, dude, we just talked about this last week. I'm thinking this weekend we had our, uh, our Patreon hangout with, with people and we talked about this. That's why it's, it's ringing a bell for me. We just talked yeah. about this. I had well, the same thought. <laughs> kind of like Wilbur, my shop was just in total disarray. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I got home and I got home late on Sunday night. So I basically dumped everything on the bench and like, went to work it's crazy and uh it wasn't until probably wednesday night that i was actually able to get into my shop and i i counted it was little egregiously obscene <laughs> i think i brought 34 saws with me to woodworking america what? Um, and they really? all fit with the exception of two of them they all fit in that little roy underhill tool tote so if anybody's ever wondering like what what's an effective toolbox for carrying tools around that tool tote's pretty impressive the amount of stuff that i got in there but it was just kind of sitting on the bench and underneath it all um was the veneer that i just bought 
and I had unrolled it and I'd actually laid it out on my bench so that I could take out some of the curl because mm-hmm. I'm actually going to be cross-cutting into shorter lengths and then storing it flat um, in a, in a one of those under-the-bed like Rubbermaid things to try to keep them from completely drying out. So that was under under that with some cherry boards on top of it, kind of weighing it down. Mm-hmm. And then there were saws on top of that. And there was like tripods and cameras and everything. So yeah, there was a good, uh, uh, fair amount of time just cleaning up the shop. But then it was like, I just want to build something simple. And I had plenty of projects sitting there staring at me going, you need to work on me. Don't be distracted. But, <laughs> and, and it all came down to Friday or what was it? Thursday at the office. Sorry. I, Did you guys hear that? The, Sorry about that. Yeah. Somebody's phone's ringing. That's Nicole calling me. <laughs> Doesn't mistake. she know? Put it on vibrate. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't even my phone. It was the whole stupid iPhone rings on everything deal. Oh, yeah. I thought I had hey, to disable it. Off, man. All right, go ahead. Anyway, I'm sitting in my office on Thursday and there is a fly that I swear has been there for four weeks. Um, obviously it's a different fly. They don't live that long, but it's just, it was annoying myself and, and my office mate. And I was just like, we, we've got to get a fly swatter in here. And um, my uh, office mate said, well, why don't you make one? And we started joking about how it should be made out of exotic, you know, woods with inlay and should be the ultimate artisanal fly swatter. And then I, was, I left the office Thursday going, I am totally going to build an artisanal fly swatter. <laughs> so, yeah, a little bit of veneer. Oh, and I made it in maple and walnut just to <laughs> keep the whole thing going. Nice. Crafty so, of you, man. Nice. Yeah, it's it's not entirely done. It's, it's glued up. It, I should be able to pull it out of the press now. And just to um, make things even more artisanal, I'm going to go ahead and do a fret saw pattern in the front of it. You know, because you got to have speed holes so that you swing it and it, you know, cuts <laughs> down on the, uh, the the improves the aerodynamics so you can get a better swing out of it. There you go. Yeah, you know, I, I I took a piece of hickory and I split it out with my fro and and got it shaved down so I've got this really nice flexible but really strong handle and sweet use maple and and uh, walnut with a little bit of white oak inside the packet at a cross grain ninety degree grain direction. So that it's like kind of a little bit of plywood. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Nice. Just a simple little project. And it kind of scratched that itch of getting something done and not getting super, super involved in the whole thing. Are you going to? Are you filming um, this? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I filmed it. Yeah. Because it's not artisanal until you film it with like really, really shallow depth of field. Yeah. yeah Get true. that DSLR <laughs> out, baby. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to actually sacrifice, um, up and, you gonna sacrifice yeah. a fly for this as well? Oh, boy. Probably. That might be just, controversial. Just just to anger PETA a little oh, yeah. bit. PETA might come after you. House fly. <laughs> How dare you? Oh, that's awesome, man. I can't wait to see. Uh, that's that's going to be a cool project. All right. Let's get into what's new. Got a couple things to share with you here. Uh, Happy Adam. This is a, a channel I found on YouTube and just kind of uh, putzing around. And he, the guy made a boomerang, but not just any boomerang. He's trying to make like a replica of the Wind Waker boomerang from Zelda, one of the Zelda games. And uh, it's just a lot of fun watching a guy take the pattern and try to create it. And he's actually carving into it to create this sort of uh, medallion and, you know, glues a jewel to it and to see if it actually works. And he spends a great deal of time throwing it at the park. (laughs) He likes to try and see if he can actually (laughs) get the damn thing to come back to him. But it's a lot of fun. Very, very different project, but kind of falls into that area of sort of cosplay prop making, uh, but also definitely lots of good solid woodworking in the project as well. And it does a good bit of like relief carving on it to get it to have the effect that it has. Uh, so cool project. Go check it out. Very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Is this me? I it can't is. Remember. Yeah, this was uh now I can't remember who sent it to us. 
Uh, I want to say it was Nathan or Nick or somebody with an N. So thank you. We're just going to call you in. And um, he he shared a, a YouTube video and he says, this guy building a guitar is unreal. And it I got to admit, it's pretty cool. It is a full hour long video. And I, I haven't watched the full hour of it. I kind of skimmed through a bunch of it, watched the intro and then kind of skipped through. Mainly, I wanted to skip to the end to hear the guitar he was building. Um, and you do. You have to wait till like 58 minutes and you start to hear the guitar played. And this lady sings this French song and it's all very artsy and everything. Ooh. But it's pretty comprehensive. Um, the The level of precision this guy uses at one point he's um gauging the fretboard and he's got one of those feeler gauge not feeler gauge um dial indicators um and he's running the dial indicator across and he's got like deviation is less than a thousandth of an inch from one Mm -hmm. side to the other and from one end to the other it's just really impressive the level of precision this guy works to um and a lot of really cool techniques for um steam bending dry steam bending not can't have dry steam bending dry <laughs> heat bending and then steam bending that would be interesting um, yeah <laughs> uh so it really cool if anybody's interested in building a guitar this is by no means a how-to video but it's much more how-to than like the typical kind of vimeo type stuff we see where it's all uh artsy music and as as, as wilbur said shallow depth of field shots yeah with you know um fun forest shots of light yeah, right. <laughs> the flannel, flannel axe wielding guy walking through the forest and everything. So this is really um, it's very cool. I actually do want to go back and watch the whole thing. It's almost like a documentary you'd find on Discovery or something. Yeah, awesome. Really well done. You know what that reminds me of? I would love to see uh, Roy Underhill's introduction for the Woodwright shop done in like a Vimeo style. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> How awesome would that be? Like he's the original guy in like oh, flannel with yeah. an axe sort of thing. Like if that, if that show was made today, that's what it would look like as a Vimeo. Uh-huh. Right? So, <laughs> uh, good stuff. Uh, all right. Does that. <clears throat> yeah, that would be good. Uh, let's see. I think I have the next one, right? Jordan sent in a link to, and I'll, I'll be honest, it looked interesting and I just didn't have time to, to read the damn thing today. Um, <laughs> But the article is entitled, Are Torrified Tops the New Industry Standard? And uh, it's for instrument making. And if you're not familiar, it does you know give you the definition of, of what torrification is, and it's a process. Um, I, I've only seen this in a couple places. It's not something that's at least around here widely available. Um, but it's essentially like, in a way, baking the wood. Right, Shannon? I mean, do you know more about uh-huh. this process? I mean, it seems yeah. to make it more resistant to temperature and humidity, um, and it's it makes it stiffer. So they're they're talking about uses of this in guitars. So um, I don't know. I, again, have it's, to read the whole article. It completely changes. It's not wood anymore. Um, yeah. It actually chemically modifies the structure and crystallizes it. So you, you lose a lot of the traditional um, fibrous structure of wood. It makes it quite a bit harder, um, and it's completely... Um, uh, stable okay like a one-to-one tangential radial movement we we brought it in um you know it's not something that we would produce but we brought it in and then resold it to uh door and window guys because it is perfectly stable awesome Um, it's the same thing that that uh, veritas is using on their chisel handles oh okay baked maple i think it's i think it's maple uh, but it's really kind of caramel colored it's cool stuff how's it affect the pricing uh, on the chisels makes no, them more expensive. I'm <laughs> talking about it the just lumber. makes them more expensive. If you're trying no, to pick up some of the lumber. wood is not nearly as expensive as you'd think because you get to skip all the other stuff, all the kiln drying and all that stuff that would go into wood yeah. because they just take it. I mean, when you bake it, it, it kiln dries it. No question. Yeah. It's kiln drying on crack. 
it takes it like 20 steps further. Wow. So uh, we've been actually really surprised that it's not nearly as expensive as you would think. Hmm. The issue is, is that you've got a, well, I don't know that you have to, but people use pretty, pretty much a hundred percent clear stock because I don't really know what a knot or anything like that would do once you baked it. Turn into a um, bullet. <laughs> some crazy. Yeah. The, the, the raw material is a little bit more expensive because I think they're pulling it from kind of veneer style logs. Mm, okay. But you know, I, I wouldn't, you look at it and you, it's not like buying, you know, composite material. Like it used to be so much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually pretty good. It's just cool. harder to find. And I don't think there's much of a retail market for it right now. Right. Good deal. Uh, Wilbur, you got the last one here. Um, yeah, I, uh, I actually was going to do the guitar video that Shannon stole, but, um, oh. uh, <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, uh, but, uh, I, I found a video on uh, Hakoni marquetry. Um, it's a Japanese technique of, uh, uh, marquetry where you take, um, little pieces of wood and build up uh, triangular or square shaped or hexagonal uh, patterns. And then you glue those patterns together. So you have this very geometric looking thing. And the way they uh, do it is that once they get all these things glued up, you actually can plane off sheets of it and um, make marquetry out, um, uh, patterns out of it. And, uh, and they basically use it as veneer uh, for, for projects. Um, I found a video of this, a couple years ago. Um, this is a different one, and it gives you, I think, um, a little bit more insight as to how the process is actually made. It's got a, a lot of uh, cool uh, close-ups of the jigs that they use for, for this process. So Nice. Um, and it's not an hour long either, so that's good. <laughs> that's always <Yeah>. nice. <laughs> this, this stuff is so amazing to me. I remember that. I'm pretty sure I remember the video you were talking about that came out a while ago. Um, I think we probably even featured it on the show, mm-hmm. but that was like a while ago, like Vanderlist a while ago. Yeah. Um, this is just amazing, though. Can I say that it takes big hakones to make Japanese marketry? <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Jeez. That's it awful. Is. You guys. Yes, it does. Stop it. That uh, was a bad one. <laughs> was that not a good one? Oh, okay. wow. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, those are cool. The little jigs he's using, he's using to cut that at an angle. That's really cool. Good mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. Wow. Good deal. All right. Let's get to kickback. This is where you guys send us some stuff and uh, that relates to comments or things from past shows. Uh, Bruce, I guess we talked about that dust explosion. I think we shared a video. Uh, Bruce says, here's an idea of how dangerous dust explosions can be. It's a news article and a video where they were already on site and the fire department was there controlling a blaze that was taking place in like the hopper from a big large scale uh, um, dust extraction system. And as they're spraying water on it, you could just kind of see it start to flare up here and there and flare it up and they're trying to keep it down. And then suddenly woof, the whole thing just bursts in the flames. There's about four guys who are like right there. Thankfully, nobody was hurt as a result. It was just a quick, short and not like, you know, re- super intense flame. But still, I mean, that's got to make you drop a, a, a something in your drawers. Uh, but anyway, these guys all made it out, thank goodness, and it is a, a powerful message about what can happen with the right conditions with uh, dust and oxygen and, you know, something just creating an ignition and boom, there you go. Wow. Scary. Yep. Go watch it. It's neat. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who this is from because uh, whoever put this in here didn't say it was from, but it says, hi guys. Thank you for taking the time at this past we're working in America to spend a couple of minutes and chat. All of you have influenced some of my some part of my woodworking career, uh, and I will always be grateful. I forgot to mention to Mark and Matt about the Shrine of Pines Museum in Baldwin, Michigan. Check out the link below to learn more. So there'll be a link. Hmm. 
Good stuff. You, you did to go remember to out. mention to me, though, Nathan, at the end of my third class, you mentioned it to me. So you didn't totally forget. <laughs> you just forgot <laughs> that you forgot. Two of them. Yeah. Cool. Uh, this next one comes from George on uh, – I was talking about Staining Rainiers a couple uh, of episodes ago. And he said, uh, I looked into this about a year ago and came to the conclusion that it's not worth it. There's no reasonable <laughs> way to get the stain deep enough into the veneer in your average workshop. I've had good luck with stained veneers from these guys. And then he gives me a link. And I think you put the wrong link in <laughs> because this is to a company that makes like clip on microphones to like clips onto your guitar <laughs> or clips onto your drum. And I thought, OK, it's a luthier. Maybe maybe there's some veneer. So I just I searched all over the site. I even used the search bar for veneers and I can't find anything. So, uh, George, what are you doing to me here, buddy? Do you know how I, much I just I- found a source for dyed veneers. And you send me. To an instrument microphone company. You know how much so, worse that could have been for him <laughs> if he if he pasted what was last in his you know his command C. <laughs> like, right, right. That could have gone. What's way, Cuban way hitting there, George? <laughs> <laughs> well, on the same topic with uh, standing veneers, Nathan also sent in. He said, I, "I found an article on using a vacuum setup for infusing dye into veneer. That seems to be the kind of the accepted practice here." And that's over at uh, everybody's favorite veneer source, joewoodworker.com. He's got a whole setup there, and you can buy everything you need right there. Um, he does go on to mention if there are any updates on my shop lighting quest. And um, I wanted to drop this in because uh, I'm hoping to actually get back to that in the next couple of weeks or so. It's cool enough here now that I can open the garage door and work in the middle of the day because I'm on, I've got one breaker that controls the lights in my shop. And I obviously have to turn that breaker off, so then I have no lights in the shop. So I need to be able to open the garage door and have some working light. And I kind of got started on it. And then the humidity kicked up. And, you know, when it's hot and humid outside, everything like uh, starts to condensate and rain in my shop. And uh, it's no good. So Mm. I'm hoping to get back to that now. I've got one run of track up, but the main fluorescent light is still hooked up. So it still works. So basically I have non-functional track up on one side of the shop. So hopefully in the next month or so while it's fall, I'll be able to get that done. Okay. All right, let's get okay. to our voicemail. We've got uh, three of them to share with you. Uh, let's see. Can't remember who the first one's from. I'm just going to play it, and we'll see what happens. Hey, guys. This is AJ uh, from New England Woodworking Studio calling with a question for you. So I am making a tall standing desk for my fiancé to use as a wrapping paper station area. And I want the tabletop to have sort of like a desk drawer coming from underneath. So it would be the uh, thick tabletop with the legs on either side. And in the middle, I would like a thin, maybe three-inch deep drawer or thick drawer as deep as the table is. And I'm wondering what you guys think the best way to attach the sides of the case that the drawer is going to be in. I don't know if you can picture this, how I'm thinking of it, but uh, so it would be the, the two sides going down in the bottom and then the drawer slides the inside that carcass. Um, and I'm thinking maybe a sliding dovetail to attach it to the top. But I've never done that before. It's a little bit sudden out of my wheelhouse. Just wanted to see what you guys thought would be the best way to do it. I'm trying to avoid using pocket screws if I can. I wasn't sure if just doing a dado and gluing the sides into that would be strong enough. So uh, let me know what you think. Thank you guys so much. Have a good one. 
All right, so it's almost like a suspended drawer under the top, and you possibly have some cross-grain issues here. Um, I'm going to throw it to Wilbur. What, what what might you do to tackle that? Oh, my goodness. Um, do you, well, first of all, do you completely yeah. understand what he's asking? I, I think I do. Um, you know, given that it's a kind of a, a, a workbench situation, I wouldn't put a whole lot of work into this. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, if he wants to make it look nice, I, I, I suppose, but probably the easiest thing would be to, um, have two things hanging from the workbench top and suspend the drawer from that. Um, in terms of attaching it, a sliding dovetail probably would be the most secure and be kind of cool if you, if he'd never done anything like that before. Um, but, uh, that's kind of where I would be going with this. Yeah. I mean, the dovetails certainly would be nice. And if he hasn't done it before, it's a good excuse to try something new. Um, you know, I guess if you go with the pocket screws, I mean, anything else, cause you got to allow for movement, right? It's 24 inches mm-hmm. wide. It's going to be solid wood. These things are going in cross grain. So the cool thing is the sliding dovetail is a great way to have it secure, uh, self squaring, and you don't necessarily have to even use glue for it. I right. mean, if you wanted to, you can glue it and, and on one side and just let the other side move as it will. Um, but I think if you're going to go with any kind of regular, you know, mechanical attachment, I think screws, because you're going to have to allow for, for movement and you could do that with screws. Uh, you guys, uh, Matt, Shannon, have any other suggestions for him? No, I mean, I think traditionally the sliding dovetail would be the best way to go. And if you've never made one before, what better excuse? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I know he said it might be a little outside his wheelhouse, but Hey, that's part of the fun, right? That's it. Challenge yourself on that project and, and give it a shot. And if nothing else, it's on the underside of the top. So, you know, no one's going to see it. <laughs> that's, that's a good advantage. <laughs> All right. Very cool. Uh, next one again. I don't know the guy's name. Oh, I think this is someone we might know. Hi, guys. This is Matt's friend, Nick Offerman. <laughs> I'm just calling because my grandfather left me a bunch of block claims, and I've never sharpened my tools before. For real, I would like the answer to this question. <laughs> I... Uh, I really need to get these things sharp so I can use them. I'm not typically a hand tool user, but I would love to use something that my great grandfather used uh, in my shop. But there's a lot of options out there for sharpening tools, and I'm just curious if you have some suggestions as to some of the more specific things, the roundover uh, parts for it, and maybe some resources where I might find help as to what other additions I can have for these block claims. Uh, thanks for your time. Love your show. So, so glad you guys do what you do. Hope you travel safe back from WIA. All right. So sharpening, <laughs> we'll ask Wilbur cause I'm curious what he does for a sharpening regimen. But the last part of his question, does anyone know exactly what he's talking about? He wants to have like <laughs> what accessories for his block planes. What? Additions, is he, like new knobs and handles, and like a, yeah, a well, fence, I, <laughs> some kind of I, a fence for it. I'm thinking Bluetooth control myself. But, <laughs> that uh, would be good. Everything is better yeah. with Bluetooth. <laughs> Everyone knows that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about our various sharpening methods before. So we'll let yeah. uh, Wilbur give us some some pointers and things that he uses for sharpening. Right. So for sharpening, so we've got what four hours for this uh, podcast, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the probably quick and dirty, um, and the, and the easiest and fastest way of uh, dealing with this is number one, just pick a sharpening system to 
um, uh, to go with. Me, I like water stones. Um, I know you could use diamond stones. You could use oil stones and a strop. And uh, there's probably a couple other things that are uh, that I'm blanking on right now. But um, I, I've kind of found that people pick the sharpening system that they pick because they're it's the one that's the least annoying for them. So for me. Water stones are the least annoying. That's why uh, that's why I use them. Um, after that, get that cheapo Eclipse ch- uh, style jig uh, that you can get at um, you know ten ten bucks on sale or, or or whatever from everybody that ever sells uh, woodworking equipment. <laughs> and then on the Lee Nielsen website, um, if I remember right, they have a, a little diagram and plans on how to um, build a, uh, a thing out of scrap wood to help you set the, uh, uh, the angle for your, your block planes in this case, uh, quickly and easily. And then, um, and then just use the jig because, um, uh, it's the easiest way of, uh, uh, getting a consistent result without, uh, you know, too, too much effort. Nice. Sounds good. Uh, all right. So I don't know about the accessory thing. We'll, uh, maybe, maybe let us know what you what you have in mind for, for block plane accessories. Cause they're pretty simple. I, mean, devices, I can tell right? you, I see, no reason to add accessories to a block plane. So yeah. that would be my answer. Just stop looking for accessories. Just leave it alone. Different, different don't, blades. Yeah. Uh, but why? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm don't, trying to I mean, think of any accessory that could be possibly an accessory for a block plane. Yeah, a I, mean, I know Veritas makes like replacement knobs. They make like a, a traditional plane tote that go on it. But to me, you know, you're, you're making something more than it is. One of the benefits of a block plane is that one handed ability to use it one-handed if you want a really small smoothing plane then i suppose you could do that or you could get like a stanley number two or a number one and 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 be done with that yeah. so i don't know i i think adding accessories like that to a block plane actually detracts from the usefulness of it hmm. okay maybe a plane sock there you go, there you go. <laughs> everyone <laughs> needs plane socks a, a, a bluetooth plane sock yes <laughs> exactly all right final voicemail here is from joe Hi, guys. This is Joe McLean in Princeton, New Jersey. I am a middle school shop teacher during the week, and on the weekends I teach regular adult woodworking classes. But I'm still sort of stumped on this one possibly simple problem, and I want to get you guys' take on it. I've been asked to bid on a project where I would replace desktops, like one-person desktops for a high school. And they want me to make it out of solid wood, probably maple, and they want me to make a bunch of them. And so I'm trying to figure out how to construct them. Would I biscuit join them? Would I simply glue them? And I guess my biggest question is about grain orientation. Like how wide can I go with the boards? With I don't want them to cup. And also, um, do I have to spring them? That's my big question. For a solid wood top or a desk, do I have to spring something even if it's only 24 inches wide? All right. Love the show. Thanks so much. And hope to hear from you soon. Thanks. All right. So even though it's a desktop, we're really just talking about a panel here, right? So I I don't know that it's worth overthinking it. Now, uh, Wilbur, when you make a panel, do you go through the trouble of uh, incorporating some kind of joinery between each board? Do you spring your joints or you just, you know, basically edge joint them and glue them together? Yeah, I, I, I edge joint them. I, I like to use a little bit of a spring, um, uh, just because it's a belt and suspenders type of uh, type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, you know, after that, it's just gluing together. Don't use biscuits or anything like that. And do you? I, I actually have never seen your shop. Do you have power tools? Do you have a power jointer and planer? I, 
I, I, I do. Um, okay. uh, basically, uh, the way my shop is laid out, it's long and skinny. On one side, I have a sharpening station and my workbench. On the opposite side, and that's where uh, I, that's the angle from which I take pictures. So that's why it looks like it's all hand tools. On the opposite side of the, uh, on the opposite wall, I've got two drill presses, a bandsaw, a uh, portable combo jointer planer machine. Um, okay. It's like um, a, a copy of the Inca jointer planer thing, and I have a, a lathe. Okay. Um, All right. So it's interesting. Yeah. I've been accused of the same shop setup, actually. <laughs> yeah. His other shop on the other side of the wall. People are convinced that when I turn off the camera, I turn around and fire up the table saw behind me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. So, uh, anyone else use any kind of joinery between them? I mean, I'm I'm very much on the side of simplicity when it comes to panels. I'm not going to really. I don't know. It would have to be a special situation for me to put. Uh, any kind of joinery there, or maybe it's a lot of, of boards and I might use dominoes or something for the sake of alignment, but certainly don't worry about it for strength. So, I mean, what, I mean if I think in terms of, because he's got a lot in yeah. terms of kind of streamlining it, okay. it probably would make sense to use like a domino or even a biscuit just because then you can kind of slap them together in the clamps and mm-hmm. maybe you could get away with fewer clamps because you're, you know, stacking the alignment cards in your favor a little. But yeah. I mean, I, if it were me, I wouldn't, do it but then i start thinking did he say how many he didn't I no mean, he just said a lot but even but, one classroom's know, worth would be quite a bit right i mean just to speed things up just to make the glue up a little bit more idiot proof i think it'd be well uh, well worth your time to just slap a couple of biscuits in there uh, if you have a domino great but if not you can go buy a biscuit joiner for pretty cheap right yeah. now and just save yourself a lot of effort sure it's not necessary for strength but certainly would be Faster. It makes the assembly process more like on autopilot for the most part. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, if you want to leave can, us a voicemail, I, go go ahead. Oh, uh, I could just make a quick unrelated plug to Joe. If you haven't checked out the uh, Central Jersey Woodworkers Association, come to one of our meetings. It's the woodworking club I belong to. Oh, and very nice. uh, you'll get nice. a lot of great information from the guys there. Very cool. You know, I, when I was in college, I spent a lot of time in Princeton at the Starbucks studying there, and I would actually hang out there and pretend I, I went to Princeton instead of uh, Ryder. <laughs> so, because uh, I thought it made me cooler. Instead of Guido Sarducci's correspondence school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm on, um, officially, I'm Rutgers faculty, and I heard this uh, story on uh, the radio once about, it's a, um, like a semi-autographical fiction thing. But the story was a Rutgers student going down to Princeton for a party and everybody ignored him and snubbed him until they found out he was from Rutgers. And then they were all scared of him because they <laughs> thought they were gonna, he was going to beat the crap out of them. <laughs> I like that story. Uh, good stuff. All right. Well, if you want to leave us a voicemail on Skype, you can do that. Our Skype name is Wood Talk Online, or you could just call the phone number 623-242-5180. Uh, and now we actually uh, should talk a little bit about our sponsor of the show, uh, Miter Set. They make some great stuff. And I'll be honest, I haven't had a chance to dig into mine. I know Matt has. So Matt, we just talked about your gunstock video and that's where I saw you use it. Um, so you've had some hands on. What do you think? The one thing, like when I got it, and I, I realized this for the first time. I had like this like like kick in the face moment. Like I can use this thing to set my miter gauge to like the most common angle, which is zero or ninety, whatever <laughs> right. is on your miter gauge. Yeah. And that's what I use it for like a lot. I don't really do a whole lot of angle stuff with it. I haven't had the chance to do a project where I do angle stuff with it, but I did do a few like sample cuts to see what that's like. But man, it nails ninety degrees like perfectly and quickly. Like you just put your miter gauge in there push up against the pins, lock it down, you're squared up. 
Let's get cutting. It's deceptively simple. You know, the way it's basically this platform with holes in it. You got the pegs and you just drop the thing into the, the slot, put it in there, lock it down. And it's like if any, the cool thing is if anything is off at that point, it's not going to be your miter gauge. Right. So if something's off, mm-hmm. there's something at the saw that's wrong, which is great for uh, for setting up and calibration. Um, a lot of times when I'm trying to calibrate something, I have to ask myself, wait, is my miter gauge off or is something with the table? Is the, the fence not in the right position? Is the, is the whole table skewed and I need to make an adjustment there? Um, so something like that is, is super handy. Um, well, I usually find when my miters are off, it's the wrong music on the stereo. <laughs> that could be I have it. to adjust the music and go with something a little bit hard, harder core. Yeah, that can help. Um, so if you want to watch someone who actually did do a little bit more hands-on with this, we have a video that you can go watch from Izzy Swan. You probably know who he is. And he does a couple of tests with it, making like I think seven and nine segment sort of segmented rings with it and shows how quickly and accurately you can get those because they have two of them. Basically, you've got the regular miter set standard, which is going to allow you to do those standard angles with your miter gauge. And then you have one that's for the segments and you can go up to 20 different segments on there. So it's it's super impressive. You're going to want to check it out. Uh, miter set is a new category of precision jigs used to set your table saw miter gauge to precise angles for cutting perfect miter joints and wood segments. With miter set, you can set your miter gauge to the exact angle the first time like Matt did. He didn't have to do it twice. He only did it once and it was done. Uh, you won't have to sand the joint and you won't waste time and material. Miter set standard. Set your miter gauge to cut perfect angles from a half degree to 52 and a half degrees in half degree increments. And miter set segments. Set your miter gauge to make up to 20 perfect wood segments. Miter set products are easy to use. Slide your miter gauge into the miter set slot. Set the face uh, of, the ga- of the gauge. I almost said gouge. Uh, against the uh, t- very similar words uh, against the tapered pins and then lock down the angle it's just that simple miter set products are ruggedly made in the USA from anodized laser etched aluminum and ship with a 25 year product lifetime warranty for accuracy and again we will put the link to the show notes or in the show notes we maybe we'll just embed that link to Izzy's uh, video over there you definitely want to check it out or just go right to miterset.com and you could learn more about these guys it's really uh, worth looking into it solves a lot of problems in the shop that's for sure All right, let's get to our email. And uh, first one I have here is from Joe Lipinski. He says, who uses curved panel calls for glue-ups? The kind that you put edgewise on a panel glue-up as opposed to putting them across the width of a panel to keep it flat. I see articles come up occasionally about using them, or um, I guess he references woodpeckers. They have a super expensive composite called, uh, or curved calls. Uh, It just seems that everybody has enough clamps to get the jobs done and making or using these arced, calls to save on clamps is well another woodworking fad question mark uh so i have similar calls i've got the bow clamp versions in the shop and i I, i'll be honest i don't really use them that often and theoretically they're great because basically if if you're not familiar with these but if you have a a curve induced in a call you could sort of just clamp on the ends and not even worry about the middle so with you know two clamps you could bring well it might take more depending on what you're trying to do but two clamps each on the ends and you have pressure in the center. And by the time you, you know, clamp home on the ends, the pressure is nice and even across the board and you don't need clamps in the center. So that's what he's referring to. And uh, I'll be honest, I just don't think to use it. And the times that I have used it, I find them a little bit tricky because once you clamp down one end, because it is curved, what happens to the other end? It comes like twice as far apart as the other one. So you're doing this like back and forth dance until both sides are equally clamped down. Uh, And I just find that a little bit cumbersome to deal with that. So most of the time, I don't really have a huge need for that sort of uh, setup 
I mean, can you guys, uh, is that something that you would do? Or if you had, let's say someone gifted these to you, because that's the situation I'm in. Like, I didn't even pay for them. <laughs> if, if they were great, I would just use them. And so, again, theoretically, it's fine. But in practice, does anybody use uh, something like that? I've used them once, um, but, 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 not for the, but not for the purpose that uh, Joe is looking for. I was uh, you know, putting together a case uh, for a drill press, you know, a stand for one of my drill presses. Okay. And um, it, it, uh, I forgot exactly how big it is, but it's like 22 inches deep and probably about the same, uh, same, same width. And the reason I went with a call to um, uh, do the, uh, do the um, dovetail corner uh, joints was not so much that I didn't have enough clamps but um i didn't that way i didn't really have to mess around with uh, a whole ton of clamps oh um for those i actually made my own calls uh sized mm. for the thing that i wanted to do out of uh, out of like two by four material okay. and uh the way i set them up was i actually clamped them in the middle first um so th- so that was across the middle of the case and then i clamped down the sides and then i just got rid of the clamp that was in the middle okay uh, and, and and it worked pretty well okay the one, the one application I think that it is very handy to have, and I thought that's where you were going with this, is if you have a large case and you just – there's no physical way to get a clamp in the middle of this thing. Mm-hmm. Using one of these allows you to just clamp at the ends and still get decent pressure in the center. So that's yeah. one of those times where – and again, if you have that like once-in-a-while situation, you could do just that. You could just get a, a two-by-four and try to, to make one yourself that applies that pressure in the center. Right. So I, I don't know that it's worth spending a ton of money on something like this. The the only time that I've ever really used one because I needed it <laughs> was anytime I'm doing a panel glue up that's more than two boards. Um, if you've got that third board or fourth board kind of floating in the middle, so you've got great pressure on the outer boards and they tend to, those ones in the middle, there's just more hinges in that joint that want to tend to bow up in the middle or whatever. And then putting a call across was was good there. When I did it, I um I actually mimicked um, Veritas. Actually, has like a panel clamp setup dealy. Mm-hmm. It's like uh these you take some boards and you drill holes in them, and they have essentially dogs that connect the the top and bottom call together, and then they they have that little threaded wonder dog dealy that goes on the end and actually applies the clamping pressure. It's pretty slick, but I think it's like fifty five bucks a set. You know, supply your own wood, and if you need like three of them for a panel, yeah. you do the math. So it was, but I, I just went out and bought some threaded rod and drilled a hole that fit the threaded rod so that I could use a wing nut to tap the whole thing down. Um, and I put a little bit of a bow in it, but like, I think it was more of an accident than, than a, an intention <laughs> type thing. But you know, that works out really well and I've still got it. It's sitting over the corner of my shop. In fact, I was probably going to use it, um, this weekend cause I've got a three board panel glue up to do. Um, the only other time was very specific use calls. Like I glued up my blanket chest recently and I created dovetail calls so that I could actually get pressure in between the pins because the ingrain of the pins wouldn't compress and I needed to make sure that the, the tails were seated nicely. So I actually made custom spaced dovetail calls. Okay. Uh, but that was like a, once I was done with that, I threw them out because I would never need them again. Right. Cool. Sounds good. Sure does sound good. Sounds great. <laughs> Doesn't it? You're up, Matt. In case you didn't know, I think you fell asleep. Somebody wake up, Matt. I did fall asleep a little bit because I was like, "Mark, this is chance talking." Is Mark question? I don't. Know, whatever. Anyway, this one is. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked this question because I think it shows what kind of person I am. This is from Jason in Maine. It says I'm enjoying watching Matt build his sawmill, but I'm curious, what exactly do you plan to do 
plan to build with all those super wide boards you're able to make. Do you have any room in your house for a bunch of large pieces of furniture, or do you plan to start taking commissions and selling your work? Um, no, I don't plan to start making taking commissions and selling my work. And no, I don't have room in my house for large pieces of furniture. Um, you didn't think this through, like did a, you, Matt? Well, that's the kind of person I'm like, I'll worry about what I'm going to do with them later yeah. after I cut them up. <laughs> right. You know, I have a driveway full of logs right now. I'm not worried about what I'm going to do with all this wood once I cut it up. I just don't want to go in the chipper. Right. Well, I actually have a question for you on this, Matt, because you've got a lot of access to some some beautiful wood. And if you run out, you go and saw more. Um, <laughs> I'm in a little I'm in a similar but different situation because I work at <laughs> a lumberyard all day. And you start to become a little inured to like the precious lumber thing because you can just go and saw some more. Um, but, you know, his point is you've got these great wide slabs in your mind. You're thinking, well, I'll just saw them into parts, you know, because it's all from the same board. I get great mm-hmm. color and grain match. And, and, you know, other people will be like, oh, my God, he's sawing up a wide board. And that's such sacrilege. <laughs> And I see wide boards all day that I bring home and I end up actually sawing them, ripping them into strips because mm-hmm. I don't need a wide board. I mean, how often do you need a 30 inch wide board or a 20 inch wide board? Because after a while, you just kind of like, well, you know, I, I got to get parts out of it. Right. <laughs> well, if you have an order for 25,000 pens, then there you go. There you go. One board. <laughs> or good to so, go. Color and grain match, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you sell a lot of the stuff, too, right? Yeah, that's what exactly. I was going to get to that. But yeah, I'll sell them all all the stuff will get sold. Yeah. You just keep the best ones for yourself and sell the rest. I have a serious problem with that. <laughs> I have wood everywhere. I'm yeah. like, ah, I can't part with this. The collection yeah. is going to be out of control. So you, I mean, you've got a little bit of property though, right? Or you have like a wood shed yet. Uh, I have my shed, but it's not quite big enough for everything that I, I cut. Oh, okay. So that's why I do Maybe the you outdoor drawing. Some of your wood to build a shed. Yeah. I can't go bigger unless I get a permit for the, the plot. And then I have to have the whole yard um, surveyed and it becomes a lot more of a hassle than the shed that I built, which was within the maximum limit of the um, no. no permit needed gotcha. thing. It's and whole- I'm out of accessory structures on this property unless I get a variance. So I'm kind of stuck. So just like take your logs and cut notches in them and do like a Lincoln log thing. And if anybody gives you trouble, you say, well, that's just my log drying yard. Yeah. But it's not a, but it looks not like a, a cabin, sir. Well, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, there's always ways to get around that stuff. <laughs> hey, Shannon. Yeah. What's the deal with Purple Heart? Hey, there you go. Uh-huh. This, this, this comes from Matt. He says, uh, I had a perfect purple piece of Purple Heart. But when I cut it on the bandsaw and milled it, it turned a much more drab gray-brown color. Yeah. I went to some online forums and tried to understand what could be done about getting back the purple goodness. And some say expose it to UV light. Others say keep it away from the light. Why did my purple heart change when I cut it? And is there anything that can be done to bring the purple color back? I understand it's supposed to change over time, but it was not expecting this when I worked it. So, yes, purple heart is one of those woods. There are certain woods that just – they're dramatic color differences – when you first mill it and you expose that fresh grain, it's like bright, bright, kind of garish, almost purple. And then it will start to deepen into a deeper color purple and then to kind of this reddish brown color. And it does it really, really quickly. And it's a mixture of UV exposure, but it's also a little bit of oxygen. And there's a little bit of just kind of chemical reactions going on there that is causing the extractives, the oil and the resin that's that makes that purple color 
Um, extractives, um, think maple syrup. Maple syrup is an extractive from a maple tree. Purple art has purple syrup, I guess. Mm, delicious I extractives. Um, but immediately when it's exposed to the sunlight, when it's exposed to oxygen, you start to get a chemical reaction going on that's changing the color. Tannins is another extractive that will cause like um, iron fastenings and things to stain the wood. It's the same process that's going on um, in purple heart. It just turns it kind of reddish brown. So there are a lot of people, I, I think I would lean more on the side of keep it away from UV light, but it's going to happen. There's really no way to prevent it. You can apply finishes and things that have more um, solids in the finish, like spar varnishes and things like that, that can kind of deflect some of that. But um, over time, it's just going to get more and more mellow. It's going to change color more and more. I don't know of any way to restore it other than to plane it again um, and expose fresh surfaces again. So uh, do you guys know of a way to bring the purple back? Purple dye? I mean, paint it. I'm bringing yeah, the purple go. back. <laughs> the, well, and ironically, painting it will also prevent it from turning red. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Just put a coat of paint on it, and you'll know that it's purple underneath. Well, <laughs> well, here's the thing. What what he's what he's wondering is his freshly cut material has lost its purple edge. Yeah. You know, and that's actually that's something that that happens with purple heart is uh, sometimes when you cut it. I mean, not all the time. Sometimes you cut it, and I've I've seen this where it's you know pretty intensely purple, but other times you cut it and it just kind of looks like a dull gray. For me, the the only thing I've you know usually recommend for people is to wait and don't purposely put it in the sun. Over time, the purple color does seem to come back. Once it comes back, then you're fighting you know a a, a losing battle. Like eventually, the 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 process that takes place that Shannon was talking about that is going to happen. Uh, pretty much no matter what you do, unless I guess if you keep it in a completely dark room that doesn't get a lot of fresh air, you know maybe it'll take a long <laughs> long amount of time. Um, but ultimately that initial time when you start to see that gray color, you just got to give it some time. Don't worry about it. The purple should come back, but then it will slowly but surely be on its path to a slightly duller color. That's not quite as vivid as you might have seen it when you first started working with it. It's interesting. I've never had it do that. No, it's yeah. always been really bright purple. Right. So now I'm trying to think of the last time. I wonder if it's like a planing versus abrasive thing i don't know it's been hit or miss with me sometimes i've cut them and it's been fine and other times you cut it and you go yeah that that really dulled up it's not as as awesome but it does it does seem to come back you know on its own so i think you just have to have enough time for that that chemical process to take place so goofy wood uh wilbur we got a bunch of questions here for you um would you like to read them these are just pulled from the patreon page for folks who knew you were coming on the show so uh sure if you want have at it Okay, I um, guess this is where I uh, earn my keep, right? That's it. <laughs> okay, so uh, Jim Rumsey says, I've been looking at getting a pull saw for dovetails, wondering what is the best saw brand to buy. Um, let's see. Ba- basically, my favorite um, cheap uh, and easily available uh, uh, disposable blade Japanese saw uh, is a company by, uh, called Gyokucho. It's spelled G-Y-O-K-U-C-H-O. Um, and they make a particular model of uh, Dazuki, which is the uh, Japanese saw with a back on it, uh, that, um, that is not exactly a rip saw. Um, it's mainly a cross-cut saw, but it has these raker teeth in it that make it behave more like a rip saw. So think of like a uh, alternating top bevel uh, saw blade for your table saw. It's sort of like that, only in hand saw form. Um, and it works really well for cutting dovetails. Um, I use, I have one. I use it all the time. Um, and I actually um, have a post on uh, 
how to get started with buying uh, Japanese saws for your typical hobbyist uh, woodworker situation. Oh, cool. And I suppose we could put a link to that in the note, show notes or yeah. something. Yeah, but, we'll put a link there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but basically, the uh, short answer for that is one Ryoba, two uh, uh, two uh, Dazukis. Um, that should cover pre- pretty much all of your joinery uh, work, and it's less than one hundred thirty bucks. So that's that. Hmm. Wow. Good deal. All right. So uh, Sam Blanchard says, "Are you still using baby oil as a lubricant on your diamond sharpening plates, and or discuss general questions of lubricant for diamond plate sharpening?" Um, See, I'm trying to remember where this came from. Um, I remember a long, long time ago, I had picked up a DMT diamond plate, and um, and their instructions said to use mineral oil, and so I used baby oil instead because it's the same stuff, only it smells really good. Plus, we had some leftover from my older son who was you know out of the baby oil age range at that uh, time. But uh, for the most part, um, uh, I've uh, I've been using a different uh, type of diamond sharpening plate made by a company called Atoma. And uh, for that, I just spray water on it when I feel a need to get the swarf off of it. Um, and I don't really use the baby oil that much anymore. So that's that. Don't know how useful that was. <laughs> I've switched to, uh, I switched to Windex on mine. Oh, um, oh. yeah. Because the blue, the blue color makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> supposedly it's not water so maybe it keeps down the rust which seems kind of silly because i always wipe my chisels down after using it but um it is a little bit you know easier to to play with because then when it makes a mess then i can just wipe it up and it cleans everything up it's very nice yeah yeah plus it helps out your elbow if it's sore yeah exactly <laughs> a big fat sharpening too. session yeah <laughs> good for shots Yep. <laughs> As always. No. no. It's naphtha. Drink it up. Naphtha with a with a twist of turpentine. No, yeah. I, I get too drunk with naphtha. Uh, I like to start with paint thinner. Yeah. That's what you said on fire first. Right. There you go. <laughs> right by the uh, dust hopper. Um <laughs> Okay, uh, from Mark with a K, who is your favorite Japanese chisel manufacturer? Um, let's see. In, in terms of the chisels that I have, um, uh, there's a guy named Chitaro Mi who makes uh, the chisels that I uh, that I have and use all the time. They're the same ones that Mark has. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, I mean, he, he, he does nice, uh, work. Uh, the other, um, Japanese chisel maker that I like, but I kind of admire from afar, uh, because, uh, a lot of their fancy chisels are basically out of my price range is, um, uh, is, uh, Akio Tasai. Um, they make really incredible, uh, looking chisels and from all reports, they work like super well. Um, but, uh, the thing is, is that, um, uh, uh, and the one thing I want to stress is that uh, they're not my favorite chisel manufacturers because of some technical issue in terms of one makes a better chisel than the other. I just kind of like the way the chisels um, uh, chisels look, and um, uh, there's something about their story that you know, that appeals to me. Um, one of the questions I sometimes get is, you know, how do you go about you know picking a uh, Japanese chisel or Japanese plane or Japanese saw if you want to go with one of the handmade ones and you know for me it's sort of like you know deciding on who which woodworker you want to make your furniture for you um, usually the question doesn't boil down to how technically good are the guy's dovetails or the, his ability to fit a drawer because everybody's going to uh, do a good job there's basically stylistic issues and some other connection that you have with the manufacturer mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that, that'll help drive your, your decision making 
So, um, so there are a lot of good good ones out there. Um, those are the guys that I like. So, uh, uh, just curious, what what does one of these cost? Like this, uh, the brand that you like? Are... <laughs> we were just going to the same place, dude. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so I'll, I'll talk about the chisels that I have mainly because, like I said, those are the ones that I have and have direct experience with. Um, the reason I went with them is that um, MI makes two lines of chisels one is like super fancy you might have a little bit of performance advantage of it but probably not that your average person would um uh, would make but the reason that was important to me is that somebody that can make a chisel like that probably knows his way around a blacksmith um, a blacksmith forge mm-hmm. um and he also makes a regular line of chisels and those are the ones that um, i got those uh, basically go for about 60 to 70 dollars a piece depending on their size um, so they're not like out of the range for, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, options for chisels out there. Uh, they're certainly in the same price range as say Lee, uh, Lee Nielsen or Blue Spruce or any of the other, um, uh, more boutique chisel man- manufacturers, um, there, but you're getting a, um, a handmade object, which is, you know, kind of cool as, uh, woodworkers. I think we could appreciate that to, uh, uh to some extent. Now, with with the Japanese chisels in particular, they are one area where I don't necessarily see the equivalent on the Western side of things. Um, where you're talking about is definitely about the top of the Western, you know, if you're paying 70, 80 bucks a chisel. But there are also sets out there that are thousands of dollars. Um, right. You know, so what is it? Is it just like the history of it, the maker, the style? What is it about those chisels that we don't even have an equivalent on, on the Western chisel side of things? Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of that is the reputation of the maker. And uh, some of that is going to be aesthetics if you get the fancier looking uh, ones. And fancy is you know kind of a relative term because there are some chisels with that wood grain pattern that's made by laminating pieces of uh, steel over and over mm-hmm. until you get this um, uh, nice pattern to it. Um, there's also fanciness in the sense that uh, the chisel maker just took a lot of time to shape the chisel in the areas that are not critical for its function. So like um, the really nice chisels, if you take a look at the way that the shoulder of the chisel um, comes into the uh, uh, the shaft of the chisel, I mean, from a functional standpoint, that doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. But the guy took time to make sure it looked perfect in terms of symmetry and how clean the lines are and, 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 thing, and things like that. Okay. Um, just in uh, a good rule of thumb is that if you're looking at a chisel price point uh, somewhere in the $50 to $150 range, you're probably going to get a little bit of a you know, uh, finger quote performance uh, issue in terms of uh, edge retention and ease of sharpening. You go much beyond that and you're really starting to pay for reputation and aesthetics and things like that. But on the other hand, you know, why do people lay out what $25,000 for a Maloof rocker? Mm-hmm. It's, the same sort of, it's the same sort of thing. Right. Um, and, and everybody can come to their own decision point in terms of um, how important that sort of thing is to them. Okay, good deal. Well, all right, I think we got one more there. One more. Okay, so Timothy says, I have seen many videos on YouTube that show a small workbench designed for use for Japanese tools. Where is the best source of plans to build one of these? I would love to build one, but I'm not sure of the scale as I've seen several sizes and some, and some that are meant to be on the floor and some that are meant to sit on t- top of another bench or table. Um, let's see. There's actually not much to these little workbenches um that the uh um that the 
that you see in these videos. Um, for a planning sort of um, uh, for a planning board, it really isn't anything more than a relatively thick, stable piece of wood with a couple of pieces of wood in, uh, inset into it to make the planing stop. And as far as the size of them, uh, you make one as wide as you need for the boards that you want to plane, um, and uh, you make it as long as your arms can reach. Um, because I don't think there's really any advantage to making one you know longer longer than that. Um, let's see uh, other op. Uh, other things that you can think about um, that I think is probably more useful than these little uh, workbenches that are on the floor would be um, a set of uh, low sawhorses. Um, and, uh, and then you can put a board on top of those and use that to sit on while you're chiseling away at uh, something. Um, coincidentally, I saw um, a post on uh, the Lost Art Press uh I think it was Lost Art Press blog or Pop Woodwork. I forget which one. But Chris Schwartz was talking about the Roman bench and how short it is. Um, and it's about the same scale as what you see uh, Japanese woodworkers um, uh, using. Um, so uh, in terms of the stuff that goes on top of a bench or, or a table, well, uh, there you can actually make it longer because then you can walk along the, uh, the, the board as you're planning something. So length isn't as much of a limitation at that, uh, at that point. But um, I, I think, you know, for me, the big thing is that you don't have to sit on the floor for using Japanese tools. I mean, you know, my workbench is a Rubo because I built a Rubo at the same time that everybody else was using a Rubo. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the stupid decision <laughs> point that I made was, well, I knew that I needed a planing stop and I knew that I was going to put it at the right-hand side of the bench and the Rubo plan was the only one that didn't have an end vice on it. So I figured that's the one for me, yeah. not realizing that I could have left the end vice <laughs> off of any of the other ones. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> I was such a moron at that point in, time in my life. <laughs> you had Rubo fever. It's okay. We all got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very contagious. So, yep. Excellent. Um, yeah. All right. Well, hey, you know what, Wilbur? Thank you so much for being on the show. We uh, appreciate your expertise, and we'll have to have you back again soon. But thanks for taking the time out. Oh, man. Uh, thanks for having me, especially since it's like, uh, what, the first show with the Patreon goal? So yeah. I'm, I, I can yeah. only assume that next week, next time you do this, you're going to have a good guest to show that people <laughs> that you're serious about this Patreon thing. Uh, Nick Offerman is next, from what I understand. So. Yeah. 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 We're friends. <laughs> Sorry. <There you> go. <laughs> He's kind of a big deal. Uh, but yeah, yeah, seriously, thanks, Wilbur. We, we really appreciate it. Um, so after this, folks, uh, if you are a patron of the show at Patreon, the $4 level or higher, you can tune into the email extra where we We'll discuss uh, if we could pick one tool to make an entire project with. That'll be interesting. Uh, what would that tool be? And uh, you have to do you have to do the four dollar level to get that. And again, they do have feeds now, so it's very easy to get those. Uh, but let's move on to the support stuff. Uh, if you want to help support the show, of course, there's the Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/WoodTalk. You could uh, go to the TWW store, pick up a WoodTalk T-shirt, or you can leave us a review in iTunes, and it helps us uh, helps other people find us in the store. You can leave a review like Word nine nine seven five seven eight who says, by far and away my favorite podcast. First, there's Mark, who pronounces dog weird. Why do I pronounce dog? (laughs) What's wrong with the way I say dog? Does that sound weird to you guys? No. Okay. Uh, Maybe they pronounce it dag. Dag. I say dog. All right. Anyway, probably sounds normal to Wilbur. He's from Jersey. Uh, And uh, he says, I'm in a constant state of relocating his shop. Okay, that's true. Uh, then there's Shannon, who kind of sounds like actor T.J. Miller, and I don't know who that is, and will convince you that you need hand tools, all of them. Last but not least is Matt C., uh, and Matt's just a man. He takes his lumber straight from the source and defeated original Matt V., 
thus sealing his spot on the show. <laughs> All joking aside, I've never met them, but after listening to over 100 episodes in the last month, their love for the craft combined with their natural and funny chemistry with each other makes me feel like I'm listening to old friends. Thanks, guys, for the great advice and content and for convincing me to spend all of my time and money on this great hobby. Well, you are very welcome. We're glad to help out. I would have, uh, I'd pay money to see the epic battle of Matt versus Matt. I don't know what we'd be doing. Uh, like, <laughs> you guys are just being Miller. You would, you, it would be a dance off, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if I know you guys. Uh, all right, Shannon, help me get in the contact info and we'll get out of here. All right, I'm on TJ Miller's IMDb page right now yeah. trying to figure out who this guy he, is. He was in Deadpool. All right. Yeah. He was in the top 5,000. That's pretty good, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I recognize him, but I can't place anything he's like any role he's yeah. ever played. Hmm. Oh, well, that's that's my life. I, I sound like the guy that no one can place, I guess. There you so, go. Oh, well, I know who he have, is. Yeah. If you have comments, questions, topic suggestions, or just want to tell us uh, the size of your hokones, you have several <laughs> different ways you can contact us. You can leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. You can call us on our voicemail line at 623-242-5180, or you can use our contact form at woodtalkshow.com slash contact, or just go to our website. And I was just going to say post a picture of your Hokones, but <laughs> do, not, do not do that. Don't do that. Because remember, this show is made possible for the generous support of our listeners. And they don't want to see that. They don't want to hear it. It's not good so, for anybody. Forget I ever said that. So oh. if you want, you can go to our individual sites and post pictures of your Hokones there. At <laughs> whisper.com, <laughs> renaissancewoodworker.com, and mattcremona.com, and giantcypress.net? Yep. Net. Yep. Dot net. I don't know. It's bookmarked. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Did not know Anthony Weiner listened to the show. Ah, <laughs> did it, uh, time to get political, baby. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. Yeah, bye. 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 Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.